beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, everyone. Thank you for tuning in again. We always appreciate your, I guess, just, just coming and listening and supporting our show. It means a lot to us. I know it means a lot to the guests. And hopefully you're taking something away from each episode that we are airing. And so I'm your host today, Joshua Black, the one doing the Grief Dreams research at Brock University. Our co-host today, Sean Ram, couldn't be here. He's fighting a cold, so he decided to stay home. So it's, it's just me today. So we have a good guest on, and so let's get uh, let's get started. So today we have Dr. Samit Kumar, uh, who is a clinical psychologist who has worked with adults who have cancer as well as their caregivers and families for nearly 20 years. He specializes in palliative end-of-life and bereavement care. His personal interests also include meditation, spiritual coping, resilience, and well-being. In addition to his career as a psychologist, he also studied with many Buddhist and Hindu teachers. He is an author of the best-selling Grieving Mindfully, a compassionate and spiritual approach to coping with loss, the mindful path through worry and rumination, and the workbook Mindfulness for Prolonged Grief. His books have been translated into several languages, and he will also be speaking uh, probably in about a week time since when this podcast gets aired in Toronto at the International Death Symposium, which goes on from September 21st to 23rd. So thank you, uh, Samit, for coming on today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So you have been doing uh, this for 20 years, which is, seems like a lifetime. <laughs> so what actually... seems like several. <laughs> yeah. So what actually, you know, what got you started working with people who have cancer? Because I'm guessing a clinical psychologist, you open your own practice and just deal with a lot of different, um, different types of people and different types of um, you know, even disorders. So what, what got you working with uh, people who had cancer? Well, I think um, a good place to start is what got me interested in psychology. And that has to do with my AP English teacher in high school who gave me a copy of Man and His Symbols by Carl Jung. Uh, which completely blew my mind. I read that after graduation and uh, was just shocked that you could do something like this for a living. And so I I went into psychology and started reading up on as many of these sort of um, meaning of life kind of psychologists that I could get my hands on. And, you know, there's a few people who really stood out. One was Viktor Frankl and the other was uh, Richard Alpert, who most people know as Rondas. And Rondas had an interesting trajectory, as many of you may know. Um, he started out as a Harvard psychologist, got fired after getting tenure at Harvard, which is unusual because of some uh, shady dealings with psychedelic substances at Harvard, and went on to India where he met his guru. And really, uh, he changed his name as his identity and devoted himself to service. And one of the first things he did was help set up uh, hospices in uh, the U.S. He was part of that spearheaded, spearheaded that movement in the U.S., And so I kind of felt like there was something in end-of-life care, something in bereavement that could teach me about the human psyche in a way that nothing else really could. So after I got into graduate school, I thought it would be a good idea to spend uh, a year of my practicum training um, in a cancer setting, not permanently because, you know, like who in their right mind would want to work with cancer patients and end-of-life care. I thought it would be just kind of a good reality check for me to learn about the human condition and about human personality and mind in general. And something that happened within about two or three months of me setting foot in the cancer center that I was training at was that, A, I found it to be the emotionally most challenging thing I had ever done with my life. And B, the very real, almost 
palpable, visceral certainty that there was absolutely nothing else I could do with my life. And so I had to sort of change a lot of things around and keep myself in this hospital setting, working with people who are facing really significant challenges. And I can't quite tell you what sort of brain damage I have that led me to synthesize that this is really, really tough, the toughest thing I've ever done, to this is what I'm going to do every day for the rest of my life, as far as I can tell. Um, I, I still don't know what it is, but, um, you know, I just don't bother questioning it anymore. It's been almost 20 years since I first did that, so <laughs> I'm good with it. <laughs> That's so interesting. And yeah, like life pulls us in these weird directions and, you know, surrendering to it, you'll see some, you know, say like there's there's something there for you for whatever reason. And I kind of like sitting in the mystery of stuff, like not really having sort of a, a really amazing backstory. Like, you know, my father had cancer, so I'm trying to help with those people. It's like, Something just pulled me there. And I want to actually mention too, Ram Das. I uh, it's so cool that you actually he was one of the people that inspired you because he's inspired me along my way too, especially in the spiritual journey. But because he's a psychologist and then I was in my undergrad in psychology when I first read about him and his stories and all his teachings, uh, it really sort of helped me put things in perspective of myself and really gave me a lot of guidance actually I was moving through my own you know personal growth, which is amazing. Um and I I a lot of who I am today is because he made it okay with what I was experiencing and how to further grow in our culture. And so anyways, uh, I just wanted to mention, he's actually just, I just got his uh, new book in the mail, Walking Each Other Home. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm uh, pretty excited to read that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's helped so many people. Um, and, you know, him and Stephen Levine had a lot of material together in the 70s. And, you know, I really do need to mention Stephen Levine. I read his stuff as an undergrad. And it was one of those things that, you know, if you're sitting around somewhere, and this still happens today, if you're sitting in a cafe and you're reading a book like Who Dies by Stephen Levine on the cover, you know, it, it tends to not draw people in, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> like, hey, man, what are you reading? That looks so cool. What's that about? Like, you don't get that reaction when you're reading Books no. about end of life care in public. <laughs> Do you think that's changing now at all? Because um, I know yes. there's this yes. big death positive movement. Yes, it definitely is changing, and I think also part of it is that you know baby boomers changed how we were born. They changed how we age. They're changing how we die. They're changing how we grieve. They're making it okay to to talk about things that were um, you know society before baby boom before the baby boom society was very different from what I can tell. There were things that didn't need to be talked about because families were connected. There were extended family systems that stayed in the same place and you just kind of knew what was happening. And as families families have drifted apart, we kind of need to talk about this stuff more because there's just more distance between us. And there, that whole uh, change in society has made it, fortunately at this point, I think it's coming around that it's okay to talk about things that are uncomfortable and not necessarily aesthetically pleasing. Mm. And do you see that with, because you said 20 years with cancer patients, do you see that change where people are more open to talk about it or are you just more comfortable talking about it? Um, I think it's a mixed bag. Um, a lot of people will tell you, well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing is that in 20 years, I've definitely seen a demographic shift in that the elderly people I worked with 20 years ago were very hesitant to talk about what they were going through as a group, not every single one of them, but on the whole as a group. That's changed very much now, where some of my most vocally engaged and outspoken uh, patients that I'm seeing are in the same age group. You know, they're 80 years old or 60 years old. It's just the past 80 years of their life looked very different now than, say, in 1998 or, you know, before 2000. 
So, you know, it's it's been significantly, I think, improved in that people are talking more about what they're going through, they're sharing it more, they're opening up a bit more, and that makes it easier for them to get through something really potentially very awful. Yeah, could you go into some of the challenges that they face as they try to cope with the impending death? Well, I mean, I think it was Stephen Levine who many years ago um, coined the phrase that you die as you live. And I'm reminded of that on a daily basis. You know, we like to hear these stories about, you know, people, somebody who got a diagnosis and it really turned things around. It was a wake-up call and they changed completely. I often find that's not really the case. A lot of times what people are doing is they're getting back into some sort of healthy coping that they had dabbled with in their youth, but they kind of left aside uh, for their adult life when they were managing their careers or family or whatever it was. And that's often very heartwarming to see. But a lot of times what you find is that um, cancer, like all traumas, is uh, they tend to amplify. It tends to amplify the way people are. And it tends to amplify not only who, uh, how the cancer patient, quote unquote, is, is going to cope with the, with the disease, but also how their family system and their social support network is going to cope with the disease also. Um, there are plenty of times when things change, and certainly as a psychologist, I advocate for healthy change in every instance I can. But a lot of times, you know, my own self-preservation as a clinician is to remind myself that these are forces much bigger than myself and oftentimes much bigger than myself and the patient in the room with me. And, you know, we have to kind of recognize, honor, and respect some of those forces that may be much bigger than us. Um, But, you know, we have to work with what we got. We got to meet the patient where they are and do the best we can. Yeah, that's true. It's very true. And I'm curious because one of the things with people with cancer you like you see on TV a lot. They're given sort of a sort of a timeline on when they're expected to may may come. Do you think that helps people process their the the death, or like does it just freak them out? Uh, yes, yes to both people to do, and certainly a lot of these treatments are changing so rapidly now that these timeframes sometimes are, are irrelevant as soon as they're uttered. Mm. Um, I really do encourage people not to live on a countdown, is how I describe it. You know, don't live your life counting down that, you know, death is coming on this day. And it's a challenge. I mean, this is something that they need to, that I think all of us would struggle with many times a day. Um, There are no finish lines with coping uh, in this kind of context. So I do recommend that people try not to count down, but instead set goals for themselves. What is it that you want to do? Anyway, you can call it a bucket list, but sometimes a bucket list is just going out for a cup of coffee. And it's nothing, you know, doesn't have to be skydiving or, you know, I want to go on a temple tour in Bali. It doesn't have to be anything terribly complicated. The one thing that I find people want the most when um, their health is compromised and when their mobility is compromised, almost everybody, and this includes the bereaved, what we long for the most is an ordinary day. Just an ordinary day where you get up in the morning and you do your morning stuff and you do your noon stuff and you do your afternoon stuff and your evening stuff and you don't even think about it being that special. It's just an ordinary day. And that's what most people want with their loved ones. It's just that chance to be ordinary about it, that this illness or this loss is not coloring and contextualizing everything in it. And that's that's really, I think, what I fight for for my patients is that they're able to have an ordinary day. Wow, that is interesting, right? Because I can see a lot of people labeling them as dying. And so they that's what they're bringing in with them to the room. And so they can't really have an ordinary day, right? Because all they sort of see is this person that's going to be dead in a certain amount of time. And so they act like that. 
rather than just like being okay in the moment, right? And just sitting with them. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it really it really pulls you away from the moment if you're thinking, oh my God, it's September. You know, I should be dead by now. (laughs) (laughs) We could all be saying that, you know, Um, but, you know, we choose not to. But yeah, it does pull you out of the moment to think that, hey, whoa, wait, what's going on here? And I think there's something about these death awareness exercises that it gives us that perspective without waiting for the urgency. Yeah, it's interesting. I always find too, like once like the date is about to approach, I can only imagine the anxiety that would just fill the person uh, or even the, the loved ones, you know, like, cause like once you have a date, people circle in the calendar and they think it's like, you know, that's the place to go. And so when it gets to that day, I can see amount like a lot of anxiety <clears throat> to happen. And then when, if they don't die, then there's this, like this unknown, right? Like now they don't know what to think. Um, yeah, for sure. Whole. For sure. And so I'm curious along the way, um, do you, do you hear about, uh, dreams of, uh, from people that are dying, um, with, with cancer yes. and do they have yes. the deceased, uh, ever in them? Yes. Um, um, quite often that you do, um, yeah, I do hear about these things. Um, Part of it is that I've always had an interest in dreams. I took a course in dreams, and one of my mentors in college was a dream researcher for many, many years, uh, uh, Bill Domhoff, or G. William Domhoff is the name he publishes under. And so I've always kind of taken an interest in that. So there's this um, there's this qualitative aspect to these kinds of dreams where most people find them very reassuring, that they were with their parents or they were with their grandmother or even with a pet and they were playing in some idyllic setting or there was some sort of a meaningful contact. And these dreams are very individualized. So there's no like, oh my God, did you see this figure dressed with these clothes? Well, then that means, you know, I think it's it's tempting to try to have this sort of universal sense of definition that if you dream about, you know, a palm tree, it means the same thing for everybody. It, it's not necessarily that way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what what I think is the most striking is that when the person wakes up, they know that they dreamed about something very relevant and they know that there's a quality to this dream, a numinous quality to the dream. Um, like what Jung described as the big dream that oftentimes these dreams form a turning point in their ability to cope with something that's really difficult. And a lot of times what I find is that people become very comforted by these kinds of big dreams that they have that involve the deceased or they involve, um, some sort of a, an entity or a being, that conveys a sense of peace and uh, unity and love um, and just kind of makes it okay. It's a very, they're very soothing, almost universally. They're very soothing dreams. Yeah. They're, they're so beautiful and they, they happen sort of like, you know, so like in the grieving process, but also sort of at the end of life. And it's so amazing because yeah. like, you don't see that with other types of, let's say you get fired from your job. You don't have your boss, you know, having a big dream of your boss coming and saying that they love you and you'll find a new job, right? Like these or mm-hmm. any other kind of like traumatic event. It's like, for whatever reason, it's, it's when the, like the bereaved is such a, like the person who died, when that image comes in to the dream, it's different. And, um, for the most part anyways, and it's like, it's, it's it's remarkable. I still can't understand it, but I see and I hear about um, a lot of dreams with the bereaved on how it just completely changes them. Like they do a, you know, a 180 where it's like they're lost and now they're found. And it's like one dream. And it's just like, yeah. what, like, how can we like tap into this? <laughs> like, this is crazy. Yeah. 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 
And so I'm glad you know, that... What's particularly relevant also, I have to add, is that not only these dreams, when they happen, they can be life-changing, but when they don't happen, they can be absolutely devastating. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people are expecting these kinds of dreams and they're waiting and waiting and waiting and it just doesn't come. And it just can add to the despair. You know, I believe that at some point the dreams will come and you can't really chase after them expecting to catch them. They sort of bubble up on their own. Yeah, and that's, uh, that was one of the big questions I, I asked in my PhD. And dream recall is one of the biggest predictors of that. And so yeah. a lot, and it's funny because a lot of people just, it makes sense, right? <laughs> but a lot of people who don't remember their dreams, they don't understand that, you know, they still want one, right? And so if they can understand that, there's ways to improve the dream recall to hopefully catch one of these dreams. And I think, yeah. too, I think too, with the dying, there's a study done where it's like the closer they are to death, um, the more likely they're going to have one of these dreams. So it's it's interesting when they happen um, on their journey. It's interesting too. I mean, there's something about the will to live and about you know the life force that we all carry within us. But I'm not sure if these dreams are happening because uh, I mean this is sort of a metaphysical question. Um, I'm not sure these dreams are happening because death is coming closer, or if these dreams happening make it okay to let go. Mm. You know, that's sort of a kind of a, questioning the causality direction of that you know um i i don't know i don't know no i don't either <laughs> but it's, it's fun to think about though <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you have the same brain damage i do <laughs> being an outlier is a good thing every once in a while <laughs> yes yes all right, so let's talk about the conference that you're going to uh, go to. I'm going to be uh, there, so I can't wait to sort of hear you talk uh, some more. So it's uh, mm-hmm. at the International Death Symposium in Toronto, uh, and your talk is on the 23rd, and it's titled Meaning, Mindfulness, and Grief and Bereavement, How Grief Can Transform Our Lives, Give Us Meaning and Purpose. So can you talk a little about like what you're going to be speaking about? Yeah, well... Um... You know, from the first day that I started my clinical training, I had a bereavement patient, and the conversation went something like this. My father died suddenly a year and a half ago. I was seeing another therapist, and she told me I should be feeling better by now, and I don't. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with me? And, you know, my heart exploded a little bit, and I was, like, pissed at this other therapist. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? And so what I, what, I, what I found over the years is that there's this sort of vein in our society that says that grief is something that you need to get over. And so many people, when we have somebody we love, we don't quote unquote, get over the grief becomes part of us. And if our mode of grieving is that this is something that should not be a part of us, we really lose out on a sense of preciousness of how, how human lives can interact with each other, can intersect with each other and how powerful that connection can be. Grief teaches us about not only the value of having an open heart, but of maintaining that open heart when it hurts like hell. Mm-hmm. And the pain is, is all over your body. It's all over every aspect of your mind and all over every aspect of your life. That if we want to push it away, oftentimes what we wind up doing is just hurting ourselves more. But if we face into the pain with healthy coping skills like mindfulness and healthy diet and exercise, if we train for grief, if we train for the pain, 
And what it can allow us to do is leave our hearts open, which is, I think, the highest potential of human existence is to have this open heart that we're blessed to be able to have and to use that open heart for good things, um, for helping other people who are in pain. And that's really been the, the, the central thrust of my work is that grief teaches us about the power of love. It teaches us about how precious love is because life is not guaranteed. And love, I think, is the ultimate meaning of life, the capacity to love and be connected and share and heal and suffer and be in pain together. And if we're trying to get over grief and move through it in a way that's, you know, well, I can do it in three months, whereas you did it in two months, you know, what's wrong with me? Like, that's not really the way to do it. Yeah, I agree. I think love's the answer. <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah. very, you know, and our definition of love is very skewed with the culture. Um, but also, you said like sitting with your own suffering is, and other people's suffering is a great exercise. Like, can you keep your heart open when someone is in pain? Not trying to like fix them, right? Not trying to like, you know, change the way they, they are, but you're sitting with them in that suffering and for your heart yeah. to be open. I think that's one of the positives that, you know, if you can work or sit with the dying, that's what it can really teach you. Because there's nothing you really can do to change what's going on. So you have no, to sit with you it. You can't tell them to hang in there. You can't tell them they're going to be okay. You can't tell them that, you know, um, I mean, they may be okay, but you know, <laughs> it'll be on a metric that's invisible to us. And, you know, I think that most, uh, most people who are in a lot of pain are very, very good at detecting BS. Mm. And so, you know, if you're going to throw out a platitude at him, you may not be welcomed back. That's interesting. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. So try to be as real as you can. And so it's great, those exercises you can do. And so you talked about mindfulness a bit. Can you, I guess, talk what is mindfulness and then how the brief can use it? Well, there's a, there's a definition by John Kabat-Zinn, which... Um, I just love it's so elegant. It's non-judgmental, present-centered awareness. And it's just having these, um, I, I think really it's a skill set of tools and that require regular practice. And I'm, I'm kind of a stickler about that, of having a sitting meditation practice as opposed to um, just kind of random here and there, we'll do it when we can. I think there's something necessary about having a mindfulness practice that is exactly that. It's a practice. And um, it's working with awareness of the breath and connecting the flow of the mind with the breath, which is intricately connected to the posture of the body. So it's really a way of becoming aware of the body, aware of the breath, and realizing the, the running of thought, how it's connected to our awareness of the body and awareness of the breath. Now, a lot of people confuse mindfulness that, you know, you're just going to be clearing your mind or emptying your mind or shutting down. And I think it's actually the opposite. Oftentimes, mindfulness is very uncomfortable. It's very difficult because, you know, it's like, geez, well, I never shut up up there. And, you know, people expect these sort of dramatic kinds of, you know, you're practicing mindfulness. Why are you still a jerk? That kind of mentality that I think Dan Harris talks about that a bit in his work, too. And, you know, it's it's all of the above and none of the above. It is, um, for me, in the context of grief, it's a stress regulatory practice that, you know, oftentimes we don't recognize grief as being profoundly stressful. And, you know, in terms of physicality, it, it's achy, the inflammatory response in grief, the mental stress is obviously there, the emotional stress is obviously there. I think that for a lot of us, we've kind of ignored the stress coping aspect of grief. And I think it's really imp uh, impossible to talk about growing or getting meaning from grief without talking about managing the stress of it in healthy ways. That's amazing. And do you find that 
you know, when you first started talking about the subject with people, they were like, I don't know, you know, like, cause I'm guessing, like, when did you start talking about this? Like, was it 10 years ago, 20 years ago? I've always been interested in meditation. Um, and we had a, uh, my family had a guru visit us when I was 13 years old and he stayed with us for several days, uh, maybe a week or two. And he taught me the basics of uh, what turned out to be Vipassana practice at that point. Um, and so I, I've always had this interest in meditation and I've always been encouraging my patients to meditate uh, as a way to manage their stress um, and also as a way to grow in stressful situations. What I find is that people who are in severe pain tend to be highly motivated. And when you speak to them on the level of human being, not necessarily as a professional, but just as a fellow human who has also had a lot of pain and you can make that connection and it's not about professional empathy anymore. It's just about, listen, this pain is much bigger than we are. We have to do something day to day because it's not going to wait for us to make plans on how to get better. The pain has its own ideas about what we should do with our lives. And uh, I think people who are experiencing this profound pain of grief know that. And they're very eager to sort of have some semblance of control or self-advocacy or health or some hope that this pain isn't going to, they're not going to drown in it. You know, they're not going to get lost in it and never come back. Yeah, you're right. That's the, uh, the big fear. And a lot of people turn to medication just to sort of find that, that way out. Um, but I think, yeah, meditation is, is a great thing to try uh, before you sort of jump. Um, to try to like just run away from it. Let's see if you can actually, you know, by cultivating something new, you know, how does that change your pain? You know, and so I think it's really cool. Is that similar to like Ram Dass talks about like being the witness? Is that very similar? Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And you know, one thing you find in the in the Indian traditions and the traditions that came out of uh, Indian practices is that there's many different ways to practice mindfulness, and they're sort of inside other techniques sometimes. Um, but, you know, I think the, the secularized version of mindfulness here is so widely applicable and it, it just does require those moments of attention of just coming back to here and now as much as you can. And, you know, obviously you're going to have to do it a hundred times a second because the mind is not wired for that really, <laughs> especially when it's under a perceived threat that grief can be sometimes neurologically it seems like it's a threat you know so it's it sets off this cascade of the of the fight or flight or this the human stress response and you know there's really um verifiable research-based antidotes to that hmm. so interesting yeah and i like how you're saying too just prior about um people's expectations when they go into the mindfulness depending on your teacher or what you're reading and they think it's like it's supposed to be really quick or they're not supposed to have negative thoughts you know like it's it's very interesting right. could you talk about that about like expectations yeah i mean uh, uh, so many people when i bring up mindfulness practice to them um it's usually at the end of the session and i'll usually start with just breathing retraining uh, teaching them how to do belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing as a way to endure these waves of grief that are washing over them and a lot of times people will say, oh, yeah, meditation, you know, I, I tried that once. I went to a yoga class and, you know, the instructor said, okay, everybody, now empty your mind and clear your mind. And, you know, it's like I opened my eyes and I looked around. It seemed like everybody else was able to do that, but I was not able to do that. So I just gave up on it. Um, 
And I'm like, you know, laughing inside going, everybody else was faking it too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so people are, they often have these expectations that when you say empty your mind, somehow it's going to work and it doesn't work on a good day usually. So how's it going to work on your worst day? So it's just kind of, you know, making these expectations realistic. The grief has ups and downs. It can persist for years and years and years. There's no cookie cutter, you know, by six months you should be at this stage. It doesn't work that way. And so too with meditation, um, just because somebody is saying, you know, oh, I have the best sessions. I float up to these divine realms every time. And, you know, I come back totally changed. And now I need to do it every morning. And you're looking at him going, I'm just fighting with myself every day. Like, this is insane. Like, I have nothing like that you may be getting more out of your practice than they are, you know? So it's just making these expectations realistic when your mind is in a lot of pain and when it's really stressed out, it's probably not going to want to sit down and and be very chilled out. You know, it's going to require some effort, which is where the awareness of the body comes in. Mm -hmm. It's to create the conditions in the body that the mind can sort of settle in briefly, moment to moment, time to time, hopefully. Yeah. And good teachers, you know, like are, you know, a great starting point because <laughs> a bad yeah. teacher can like, you know, as I said, like it can make you believe that, you know, it's further than it really is. And so I'm guessing your books talk about and help people cultivate that. Yeah. Yeah. I tried to get into um, this intersection that mindfulness can help with grief, but it's not the cure. Mm. And uh, I think I, I really do try to make the case that what my perspective on grief is that I have no delusion that this is something I can cure. Um, the best we can do, I think, with grief is to manage it and to help people heal from it, which is not the same as curing it. But it's a way to restore meaning in life, a sense of purpose in life, and a sense of purpose in pain, in incredible pain. Yeah, you almost get a, it's interesting because like, we've talked to so many people on the podcast and their meaning completely shifts. Um, and when they heal, you know, like their and their purpose has changed dramatically and it's almost like a deeper purpose, you know, like they want to help others. They want to like, they want to be a better person. Like, it's very interesting how say like suffering really can change you to be just a different person altogether and something that can actually is more loving and more compassionate to the world. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the ideal. Uh, you know, I think we do have to also pay attention to the other side of it. A lot of people get very cynical. They've been through horrible things. Yeah. They watch their loved ones go through excruciating suffering, which oftentimes shatters their sense of what this world is all about. And, you know, sometimes the meaning that they get from their grief is just enough to get them to take a shower mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe to go to work uh, for a day, or maybe it's just to not drink that day. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it isn't always uh, it isn't always the best case scenario, but yeah, we do hope for um, is that we get these profound shakeups of personal meaning that are that are going to be of benefit to everybody. Mm-hmm. And when they come, it's always a mystery. Um, but hopefully, you know, they do come, and that's why I like dreams so much because it so like puts people in that path where they can. And it's so fascinating. I'm just talking about dreams. <laughs> so fascinating how like like. It doesn't, you have to be spiritual not to still get the more, the profound dream. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's something deeper than just like, um, I believe in an afterlife or not. Like there's something like in the core of us that is able to shake us up um, at a certain point. And that's always interesting when it occurs. 
and uh, how it shapes you as you move forward. So yeah, it's uh, it, that's probably the one reason why I love grief because it can change people so much where like other things can't, you know, like even education or going to school can't change people like, you know, going through grief can. But yeah, that's uh, it's amazing. So let's let's talk about your uh, your own loss. Since you meditated so much as a young young kid, <laughs> um, not very consistently. Not very oh, consistently, you're one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah but you know, when you're Indian, you meditate, can... and then when he leaves, or <laughs> you stop. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you're Indian, you can get away with a lot of stuff. People just assume, you know, like, oh, you're Indian, you know how to meditate. You must be doing it all the time. You must be really good at yoga. I'm horrible at yoga. <laughs> I'm so bad at yoga. I'm probably the oh. tightest person I know. Wow. Um, but yeah, you know, if you're Indian, you can get away with this stuff. <laughs> Way to break the stereotype. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so <laughs> when did you have your first loss and did you ever use um, meditation or mindfulness through that? So the first significant loss that affected me happened long before I was born. Um, it happened uh, to my mom's family, actually, during the partitioning of India. Um, when she was uh, about between nine and 12 years old and she saw her train get attacked and her parents and her brother killed. And she was um, um, in a position where she had to run away with her younger siblings and hide overnight until they were found and taken back to their town and uh, eventually reunited with her family that had settled in India. Um, And so, you know, this was, I think you find these kinds of stories in, Unfortunately, in more and more families around the world these days, um, that when you have something like that happen, it, it sends shockwaves for generations to come. And so that was the first real loss that I had was this longing that my mother had for her own mother, um, who was killed um, and couldn't share in the milestones of my mom's own maternal gifts that she was giving her children. Um, so some of my earliest memories are my mother talking about her own mother and what life used to be like before all these horrible things happened and this sort of mournful uh, sense of, you know, wrong. Something horrible happened. It was terrible. It was awful. And I'm living with it for the rest of my life. So that was the first real loss that, that happened. It happened long before I was born. And it happened to, I should say, it happened to millions and millions of people in North India and in Pakistan and Bangladesh. What's um, now Bangladesh? And it was uh, completely, I think, useless, uh, just politically motivated, the kind of thing that is happening constantly around the world still. But the one that really taught me a lot um, was my mother, uh, my own mother, who died about two and a half years ago when I was well into my career as a psychologist and author and presenter and all of this stuff. And she died very suddenly, very unexpectedly. And they lived about 20 minutes from me. So I was over there as soon as I could be there, but too late to really say goodbye or anything like that. Um, She was already gone. And uh, that really has, has deepened my work. And I'm relieved to say it didn't transform it. I found it to be some sort of comfort in those days that followed, in those days and weeks and months that followed, that I found myself um, remembering things I had told people over the years in, in practice, the things that I had written about coming back to me, and I found them relievingly to be somewhat helpful. So it wasn't, 
I was kind of wondering, you know, am I going to be like, oh, my God, I've been an idiot all these years. I can't believe I said this garbage to people. <laughs> and I found that, you know, at least for me, it helped me. I don't think I can help everybody. Everybody's different. But I found that it was an affirmation of a lot of the things that I had seen in other people now unfolding in my own life. Yeah, you almost have like a, a deeper faith in in the practice and in what you've been teaching, which is beautiful that uh, it didn't go the opposite way. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. you know, there's certainly, it could always be self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but, you know, I found myself getting back on the meditation cushion three days after she died. It was the morning of her cremation. And I, like so many people who are in a state of acute grief, couldn't sleep between 3 and 5 a.m. I was just waking up. And I think I suspect it's related to the aspect of dreaming that happens at that time. And there's a lot of other conceptualizations as to why people who are grieving tend to wake up between 3 and 5 a.m. But I found myself awake at around 4, and I thought, you know what, we're cremating her today. A lot's going to be expected of me to do. I'm going to get back on the cushion and see how it goes. And I just pushed myself, forced myself to get back on the cushion and sit through the session. And, uh, you know, at the end of it, I remember thinking that this was a gift that she had given me and that it was now continuing to live in me as a part of her. She was very supportive of, of our spiritual lives and our spiritual practices. And she was constantly bringing these traveling gurus in, many of whom turned out to be charlatans. But, you know, she would tell us, you know, they had some good things to say. We should focus on the good stuff they said and not focus on their personalities and how weird and corrupt they are. <laughs> you know, she wasn't easily suckered either. So, you know, she would host them and cook them beautiful meals and things like that. When it came time for their quote unquote generous donation, you could see their eyes start to twinkle and, you know, they would not get a whole lot of money from it. They think it pissed them off. It's <laughs> <laughs> really funny. Yeah. I like your mom. You know, I don't, <laughs> and for you to say like, like that practice, like she taught you and now it lives in you. It's like she lives in you. That's such a beautiful statement actually brought tears to my eyes it's just you know the amount of i think just the amount of love there and gratitude for who she continues to be in your life you know um that's amazing so amazing every day every day i'm actually curious how did your mom see your career uh and like was she like just super proud of everything you've been doing and like how you used uh like meditation stuff to to like and further uh, outreach to help people yeah yeah. Yeah, she was. Um, you know, I think it's uh, one of the good fortunes is that she was able to read my books before she passed away. And, you know, they had them in their on their coffee table in their living room. And, uh, yeah, she was really happy with it. She, of course, worried that I was doing some pretty weird stuff with my career, working with dying people and the bereaved. And, you know, I I didn't talk about it a whole lot. At, when we would go visit um, on the weekends and hang out together, I didn't talk about my job a whole lot because it tends to not be very pleasant. And, um, you know, she would express her concerns like, you know, I'm worried about you doing this kind of work. It's really hard. It's going to take a toll. And um, so, you know, I think once she started finding out that I was taking care of myself, she was okay with it. You oh, know, that's beautiful. Would, yeah. Yeah. That's the beauty of a mother's love, right? Like, just want to like make sure you're you're safe, that you know things aren't too stressful. 
where you're like, well, I got this. You know, you taught me well. Right. <laughs> He's like, right. I don't know. Right. <laughs> right. And I do want to add, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure I can say I hit the ground running with doing this well. Mm. Um, I don't think I hit the ground running with coping with it well. Um, it's a process. And it took me many years to figure out that, you know, maybe having a glass of wine when I get home is not a good idea. And, you know, uh, for me at least, or running was a much better option. And, uh, you know, the, the stream through it all was a meditation practice, doing that every day, uh, twice a day for many years, and now once plus a day. Yeah, so it's not necessarily something I woke up and said, you know what, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to do it. This is an evolving practice. Wow. Wow. Hey, I didn't know that. You know, because you got the assumption, right? Well, your mom's, you know, <laughs> so cool. You got to right. be just like, yeah. But you're right. It's it's in, like everyone has an individual journey, and it's not as easy as it seems. You know, like once you have to sit with that and sit with the suffering, like a lot of stuff comes up in yourself that you have to work on. And this is just yeah. life, right? Like that's the beauty of life where it continues to show you and mirror you, you know, what still needs to sort of work, be worked on a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's been two and a half years. So have you had a dream of your mom since then? Yes. Yes. I've had uh, quite a few of them. And, uh, you know, of course, with my interests and in things, I was sort of like, maybe tonight's the night, you know, maybe tonight's the night. Tonight, I'm going to dream about her tonight. Right. Yeah. You know, so I know all these lucid dreaming techniques and I was trying to like, you know, come on, come on, come on. And, you know, I found that at least for me, I couldn't rush it. It was, uh, it took about six months. Um, let's see, actually it took a little bit less for me. It took about three and a half months. And I find that that's the case for many people is that there's a lag time between the loss and they may have a dream in the first week or two, but then there's, there tends to be a low and it's three to six months before they'll have another dream or remember another dream. Yeah. <clears throat> and at, at that point, at least for me, what happens is that they're infrequent, but so meaningful when they happen. Yeah, no, like I see that a lot too, right? And that's funny because my first dream of my father came about three months after. So yeah, like there is that lag. And people, you say like people get worried or the other big thing is people don't share it um, with family members because they think they may have been the only one. <laughs> and so yeah. they hide it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, fortunately, my, my sisters and I all, having been raised by my mom, we were very open-minded to this stuff. So we've, oh, cool. it's strange, you know, through, we live hundreds and hundreds of miles apart and we each, all of us seem to all have our bad weeks at the same time. It's really weird. <laughs> all these years later. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what was your most memorable dream that you had of your mom so far? I'm, I'm just kind of going over them in my mind. And I think they're, you know, I think one in terms of the, the dream imagery that I found to be the richest was um, there was a, a long table set up for, for like a holiday meal, um, like a Thanksgiving type of meal or Christmas Eve dinner or something like that. But it was at a crossroads near our house where there's a traffic circle that's round. So this table was set up at this crossroads near the house and she was there sitting at the head of the table. And like my family came for this meal and I was just so excited to see her there, so happy to see her there. And there was this radiant quality to her, this kind of luminescent almost quality to her. 
And it wasn't like this, you know, oh, she's alive and everything's fine and I'm dreaming about those days. It was a, I'm experiencing being in her presence wherever she's at right now kind of feeling. There was this, I think the part that really stands out isn't the visual imagery. It's this sense of feeling connected to her again that I, I'm kind of struggling for the words to describe this, but when you're with somebody, there's a sense of being in their presence that you experience on a physical level that when you no longer experience that anymore, you know what it's like and being able to experience that again in the dream of being body to body present, even though it's dreaming is just so refreshing in a way like, ah, I can, I'm around her presence again. That sense of being in her presence is in every dream I've had of her. But that one just stands out, this idea of being at a feast. And food was such a big deal to her. She's such a good cook. And, you know, being at this feast, at this crossroads with her, was just really, really, was really cool. Wow, I'm glad you had so many of these, you know, beautiful images of your mom. And you're right, that present, that feeling. It's, it's hard to explain. And, and when I try to explain to people who never had one of these dreams, like an academic, <laughs> some academics. Mm. Uh, why are you studying this? Um, they just don't understand, right? Like how powerful it can be. Um, but there's something yeah. beyond the image. There's a feeling that you just can't really explain. That's amazing. Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, there may be some research in this that I don't recall. Um, but I think these kind of big dreams, they cross over into a multi-sensory experience, you know? Like when you're dreaming, it's usually a visual mental thing, at least for me. But then when you can smell something or you can experience the tactile sensations or, you know, you hear words being spoken to you in a meaningful way and you cross over into this multi-sensory realm, they, they sort of are like, whoa, this is a big deal. I need to pay attention. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's something here. And you, and so like a lot of times, like they're very comforting. Um, there's some negative yeah. dreams people have, but like this, uh, the comforting images with, with the deceased. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. I know Carl Jung even had his own um, with his wife. So uh, that passed away. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. And so it's, it's great. You, uh, you had that. What was your mom wearing in that dream? Cause she was very luminous. Was she wearing like her normal clothes or was it like, no, she was, so she, she was a scientist and she went to work at a university. Um, and so she would wear kind of Western clothes for that. Um, in all the dreams I've had of her, though, she's wearing a sari, a traditional Indian sari. Oh, and not right. a very fancy one, just one of her favorite ones. Um, oh, I think cool. it was very soft, soft material, very comfortable for her. Um, so in all the dreams I've had of her, she's wearing a traditional sari that she would wear to the temple or to you know Indian gatherings and things like that. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. And did your mom ever talk about... Did she ever have a dream of her parents or her family that died? I don't recall her ever mentioning that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you'd think, right? Like she's, she seemed like she, she's the type of person who would rally, value these dreams. So you'd think, yeah. and yeah. you know, it's hard because like, un unless you ask, people tend not to share. And so that's a very interesting you know, thing. I wonder if yeah, she did. I mean, it was, yeah. yeah, that whole period of her life was so painful. She, um, yeah, you could tell it was all she ever thought about sometimes, but she didn't really like to talk about it a whole lot. 
And uh, once a year, we would do a puja for her parents and her brother uh, who had died around the time of year that it happened. And that's when she would open up to me about what happened and kind of debrief with me every year and always adding a little more detail than she had the year before. I think I remember her saying something about her having a dream at one point, but I don't remember any details from it. I think it was when she was still a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. She had especially... nightmares for years. I know she had nightmares for years. I'm not yeah. sure those are grief dreams. Those are definitely traumatic dreams. Yeah. The um, hey, what the research was finding too, like some of my research finding, yeah, the trauma if the death is traumatic, you'll definitely um, it's associated with more negative dreams. So seeing the deceased dying again, reenactments, so the PTSD stuff. And yeah, yeah it's just, it's a part of dreaming of the deceased. Like, it's another little like pie slice of some of the dreams people are having, and trying to understand right. why are they having these negative ones and other people are having these positive ones. But yeah, like right. telling about her story, they may have been negative. So like, why share that, right? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't really want right. to relive that that moment. That's so interesting. Yeah. Wow. Oh, it's okay. So our final question, just wrapping up now, is uh, if you could have a dream tonight um, mm-hmm. of your mother. What would that dream look like? You know, it kind of loops right back to what I was saying earlier. Um, it would loop back to another one of the most powerful dreams I had with her. We were just having an ordinary day. It was mm. just an ordinary Saturday or Sunday. I was bringing my kids over. We were going to eat some of her delicious food and hang out, <clears throat> hang out and watch some Indian movies maybe and then go back home. Oh, that's cool. Um, <laughs> I would love to be able to do that one more time. Wow. What movie would you be watching? Would it be like an unreleased movie or something? Do you have your favorite probably, one? Probably some sort of an action movie. That I have two boys, and they were um, 11 and 8 when she died. And so it would be some sort of action cop movie, you know, with some totally unrealistic action scenes that Indian movies are really good at doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, those are like just the great days. Those ordinary days are so <laughs> great. great. Yeah. I like that. I like that. You know, like I get a glimpse into sort of one of your memories of her and like how how much it meant to you to be able to do that to bring your your children over to her. Did you want her to be the age she died at, or do you want her to be younger? Because a lot of people who have these dreams have their deceased younger. Um, she is usually the age she was. Uh, oh, no. Maybe a couple years younger, but not too much younger. Mm. Um, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I always sort of find that. She she didn't look her age, I should add. She did not look her age, so she looked a lot younger than she was. Um, She was 80, but she looked about 65 to most people. So... um, Gotta be the secret of meditation. (laughs) Well, I think it was meditation. She used to do a lot of yoga. Um, She ate mostly vegetarian, home-cooked Indian food. And, uh, you know, she stayed out of the sun because she had a, a basal cell uh, skin, skin cancer many years ago. And that she hadn't been out in the sun. Like, you know, she didn't go out of her way to go to the beach. I'll put it that way um, after that happened. So. Wow. Well, she seems like an amazing woman. I'm glad you had her as a mother. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. Sweet. Yeah, because a lot of parents yeah. wouldn't have taught um, their children meditation at such an age or bring people in and, you know, and. And basically help shape you to, to look at, you know, what makes someone deceitful or what makes someone loving and, and more real when it comes to understanding truth. So, you know, she was like providing you some guidance there um, to understand yeah. like what, it, you know, like how do you, you know, how to see when people have masks on um, to try right. to get to the real source of people. So I think it's beautiful. 
Wow. So thank you so much for coming on. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I look oh, forward sure. to Likewise. hearing hearing about your, uh, about your talk even some more. And then uh, hopefully running into you there and, and chatting some more. So if is there any place people can find you? Do you have social media at all? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter, which is uh, at Samit Kumar. I have a professional Facebook page, uh, Samit Kumar PhD. And uh, I have a website that I just don't check that often. But uh, my, my email is on there, uh, Kumar at gmail.com. Um, and uh, you can find my books on Amazon or order them through your independent bookstore if they don't carry them in stock. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to help. Beautiful. So yeah, if uh, listeners, if you want to know some uh, some stuff about mindfulness and, and grief, and and try to help you guys help you out or help others out, you know, try to pick up one of his books and uh, see if it it fits with you and um, and if it can help you understand a little bit your own life and your own loss. I should say too, we will be having a booth at the uh, the conference, so the International Death Symposium. So if you do come out um, to see uh, Samit come by, check out our booth, say hi to us. And oh, I'd love to chat with you some more there. Uh, so for our stuff, if you want to just check out griefdreams.ca, you can find a bunch of information on there. Uh, Instagram at griefdreams, same thing with Twitter. And then if you want to join the Grief Dreams Facebook group, feel free to, there's a bunch of people sharing and supporting each other within that group. So it's amazing to see. As we like to say at the end of our podcast, with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.